All right, great to be with you guys. And uh, JJ, great job from your basement. That was well done by you. Especially like when the heater came on. I was listening with headphones and I like jumped. I'm looking around my house like, what was that noise? And then I realized, wait, that's in the video. I took my headphones out. I'm like, yep, it was in the video. So I thought that was really funny. You got me on that one. But uh, that was great. No, well done. That was really good. So I know I'm putting you on the spot, JJ, but if you could say, you know, maybe one or two things that you would wish that people got out of what you shared, what, what would be one or two of those things? Um, the biggest thing is definitely like to focus on the reality of who Christ was, his death, his resurrection. And if that were indeed true, then there is no need to hmm. If our faith is there, then we can take everything else at his word and at the word of the scripture uh, at face value. Yeah, that's the bedrock, right? And that's that's such a great point. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said that if <laughs> if there's a guy who tells you that he's going to die and he's going to come back to life, and then he does it, you probably want to listen to what he has to say. You know, I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? So that's good stuff. So, all right. Well, as we dive in for tonight, um, just, um, we're going to hit a lot of different scripture passages. I certainly don't expect that you turn to all of them, and if you want them. I'm sure I can give them to Rachel or one of the leaders and they can uh, get them to you if you want. But we're, we'll certainly be jumping around a good bit. But you're welcome to, to look up whichever ones, whatever ones you would like to, to join in as we do. But um, no doubt is something I think we all experience. I, I believe we do all experience it. And so kind of as I get started, I just want to start with a story. I'll come back to the story at the end of my time with you guys. But it, maybe it'll set the stage a little bit for where uh, we're going tonight. And this story is actually about my mom. And um, so my mom trusted Jesus as her Savior at a fairly young age. Uh, she grew up, she wanted to serve God and eventually decided that he wanted to use her in the area of missions. So she went to a missionary training um, with Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And there she met a young man who turned out to be my dad. And uh, they ended up heading to Thailand and serving there for 21 years together and um, just really serving the Lord. When she came back to the States in 1978, I was, I was on the scene then. All three of us were born in Thailand, but we, when we came back, I was about third grade. And uh, we settled actually in Warminster, right close by, and we started attending this church. And so from about fourth grade on, this has been my church, my home church. So it's been pretty neat to be able to serve in the church where I grew up. And when she was here, she started uh, serving in the church. She believed strongly in that. She was involved in the missions team. Uh, she was one of the first MOPS mentors when MOPS was just getting off the ground. She was one of those, and, and uh, that was pretty cool now seeing the, the rich ministry that MOPS has had. And after all the kids were out of the house, mom and dad eventually moved to Maryland to be close to my sister and nephew. Um, she was a single mom raising a young boy, and so they wanted to be near her to support her, and they were able to do that for a number of years and were a huge part of his life. And uh, after my dad passed away, uh, my mom was, my nephew was now finishing high school, so the need for her to be there wasn't quite as great in his life, and she decided she would move back up to this area to be near my family and my brother's family. We were both in this area, and we had kids, so she thought she would do that. And it was probably right about that time that she was starting to experience some symptoms 
symptoms, um, just some things were going on that were a little puzzling to her. And so she kind of put it off until she moved up here. And then once she did, we started the process of going to the doctors and trying to figure out what was going on. And we kept going to doctors and going to doctors and we weren't getting answers. And then neurologists and we weren't getting answers. And finally, as we discovered later, she was diagnosed with a disease called ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a muscular disease, which where your basically your muscles just degenerate over time. It's not a pretty disease. It's, it's, it leaves your mind intact, but it really decimates your body. And so we started this journey of mom having this disease, and eventually she moved in with us for a brief period of time. And then um, we had her move into a facility nearby where they cared for her and just kind of over those couple of years really watched her decline. And uh, it wasn't, wasn't easy. It wasn't pleasant until the time came when eventually God took her home uh, to heaven. And we were confident of where she is, and, and that was certainly a comfort. But I still remember having conversations with my family, especially my brother, and just raising questions like, it just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, here's a woman who devoted her life to serving God, you know, did whatever she could to help other people to know him. How, how come she goes out this way? Like, it just doesn't seem to, to fit. It doesn't seem to be right. You know, it seems like there should have been a better exit for her out of this life. And I think maybe that encapsulates in my story, you could come up with your own story of something that's occurred in your life which doesn't seem to fit with what you would expect God to do or how God is or what he does or how he operates. And whenever those things happen in our lives, there's always opportunity for doubt, right? We start to doubt maybe God's goodness or we doubt his presence or we doubt if he even exists at all. And I think those are natural things that we have to, to work through and figure out as we go. I was looking up the definition of doubt. One of them I came across was a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. Have you ever felt that? Just this feeling of uncertainty, you're just not sure, right? You want to be, but you're just not. Maybe you don't feel like you have enough information to be sure. Or there's contradicting evidence. One piece of evidence points this way, but then you look over here, and this seems to point a different direction, and you're left wondering which way to go. And often it can cause us to have this indecision between belief and disbelief. Do I believe? Don't I believe? Which, which way am I going here? And that's not often a fun place to be. You can often feel like you're caught in the middle, wondering what to believe and what action to take. And maybe you've wrestled with some of these questions. Um, I think all of us at some point wrestle with them. Questions like, does my life have meaning or doesn't it? Like, is there a purpose to all this? Like, does, do I even matter or not? Those are the options kind of to think about, right? Or maybe from a, from a God side question, is there a God or isn't there? Maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you're still wrestling with that. Not sure that there's, I doubt, I have doubts that even maybe God exists. Not quite sure if he's there. Or if you believe he is there, can we know him or can't we? Are we able to know God if he does exist or no, we really can't? A lot of people who might refer to themselves as agnostics would come to kind of this conclusion. I, I believe there's evidence for a God, but I don't really believe I can know him. There's just, there's then that doubt kind of exists in their mind. Um, is God good or isn't he? You know, I'm taught that God is good. The Bible tells me that God is good. But when I look at what happens in the world and some of the things that are taking place, it's hard to rectify that with a God who is good, right? We all have to struggle with human suffering somewhere in our lives. The idea that how can human suffering and a good God both exist together. It's hard for us to reconcile that. Another one, can I trust the Bible or can I? 
There's a lot of questions about this book, you know, that was written over a long period of time, a long time ago. Um, You know, human beings were involved with it. Uh, How can we know that we can trust it? You know, if it is the book, if it's God's word to us, if we're putting all our stock in what this book says, of course you want to know if you can trust it or not. And so those are some of the questions. Now, I'm not here to necessarily answer those questions for you, but I'm more raising them as examples of areas in which you probably have or even now experience doubt. And my point is that doubt is a natural part of our current human existence. Like, I just think we need to understand this. Doubt is a natural part of our current human existence. Everyone experiences it. So if you feel like you have doubts, even about faith and about God, one of the things I think we need to understand is you are not alone. In fact, Everyone else around you has experienced or is experiencing some form of doubt. If you probe deep enough, if you ask enough questions, you'll get to a point where you're like, wow, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure which way to go on that. And there's probably some doubt that exists in your mind. And I just want us to understand that that's normal. That's kind of why, that's how we live today. So why is that? Why is doubt a natural part of our current human existence? Because it's not really fun. Like it leaves us in that limbo world. We don't usually like it. So why is it a part of our natural existence? So let me suggest a couple reasons why it is before we get into some things we can do about it. First of all, we cannot see the whole picture. We can't see the whole picture, so there's always going to be room for doubt when there's areas in which you cannot see or do not know. And so I think it's important for us to understand we just we can't see. It's not like eventually in this world we're going to get to see the whole picture. In this world, we cannot see the whole picture. We just can't. I use this illustration on Sunday, but it's like we live in a snow globe and we can't see outside of it. And our existence is within this globe and God's outside of this globe, but we can't see from his perspective. We just can't do it. I think it's interesting. It's God's response to Job. And we looked at, again, this on Sunday at Davisville. But the first question that God asks Job when he responds to all of Job's questions and all of Job's like, come on, God, show up. I want to have an audience with you. The very first thing God says is, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Who is this that's asking questions when they don't get it? You're asking questions that you don't even understand what's behind it all because you don't have my perspective. And so that's God's challenge to Job. Like you're calling me to account, but you don't really get the whole picture. And we can't. We really can't. Secondly, we live as broken people in a broken world. We are limited in our perceptions and our understandings. Um, Our very perception of reality is tainted. Think about that. Our very perception of reality is tainted. We cannot see completely clearly. The Bible even talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. Paul writes, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What he's saying is now we're not seeing completely clearly. It's interesting, the King James Version says, for now we see through a glass darkly. I don't know if you've ever done this experiment. I meant to bring it and I forgot. But just if you put a glass of water and you have a pencil and you put it in the water, what does it appear happens to the pencil? Anybody know? It appears to bend, right? So it appears like the pencil shifts. So you pull out the pencil, it's straight. You put it in the water, it appears to shift. And why is that? Because light travels differently through water than through air. And so that whole science thing kicks in. But the idea being like, we can't even, like you, it's like we see the pencil in the water. We can't even see reality clearly. It's so easy to deceive us even by perception of how things appear versus reality. And it's frustrating, but it's just true. 
Uh, we have an enemy. There's a third reason why we uh, doubt is a natural part of our current human existence. We have an enemy who's actively working to cause doubt and to deceive us. Now, this is from the Bible's point of view, okay? But from what the Bible teaches, we have an enemy, and that enemy is actively looking to sow doubt into our minds and to deceive us into believing things that are not true. So if you think about having a powerful enemy who's very good at what he does, trying to help you not see clearly, that's, that's hard, right? That's, of course, we're going to get tripped up. We're going to get messed up and, and have doubts. It's interesting. This goes all the way back to the very first appearance in the Bible of the enemy. In Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, if you're familiar at all with the story, God's created this amazing garden. He's placed Adam and Eve in this garden, and he's told them, look, this is, and paraphrase, this is all for you. You can eat from anything you want. You can enjoy it. Just one thing. Don't eat from this one particular tree. He limits one thing and gives them everything else. But what do we tend to do in those situations? We focus on the one thing that we're told not to, not to do or not to have. You do that with a child. You give them a whole room of toys and say, but don't touch this one. What are they going to do? <laughs> they're probably going to go over and try it because they're just it's something about that. I'm not supposed to. I'm not allowed to. So therefore, I have to. It's almost built into us. And, so, and that's exactly what takes place. But listen to what the serpent says when he approaches Eve says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And this is what he said to the woman. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So think about that. Did God really say? What's he doing? He's trying to sow seeds of doubt. Is this really what God said? And then what does he do? He says something that isn't true. Did God really say you're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He said we can eat from any tree in the garden except one. And so right away, the serpent's trying to sow these seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. And really what he's trying to do is he's trying to get her to doubt God's goodness. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have what he, you know, his separate special thing. He wants to keep you from that. And so Eve falls prey to this deception, and we are really no better. It's also interesting, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says the God of this age, again, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What that's saying is that this enemy has the ability to, to blind people who don't know Jesus, to keep us from seeing the truth for what it is. In fact, the very next verse I want to point out, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit, so this is a person who's not a follower of Jesus, doesn't have the Spirit of God, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So truth, I would argue, truth that comes from God is not accepted by the person. It can't be seen properly for what it is by the person without the Spirit, but considers things from God foolishness. And cannot understand them. And the word there means properly evaluate. It cannot see the truth of the gospel for what it is. Because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And what that's saying is without God's help, we can't even rightly evaluate the truth of the gospel. Now, people who don't know Jesus can obviously understand that Jesus died. They can even intellectually understand the idea of resurrection. But they can't properly see it as the truth that it is without God's help to see the truth. That's true for each of us. If you become a follower of Jesus, you made that choice, but God helped you make that choice. God helped you to see the truth for what it is. And so even there, we, we just have to understand that we can't always trust even our own perceptions of reality and what truth is. We need God's help even to do that. 
So we're constantly choosing what we believe, what we don't believe. Sometimes those choices are based on incorrect or incomplete information. It's just a part of living in the world in which we live. And that's why we can revise our opinions or beliefs based on new evidence. You've probably had that happen. Maybe you believe something and then evidence showed up that helped you to change your opinion. I remember when I was a kid, I would argue with my brother and sister and they actually had fun with this. They're both older than me. And they, would, they told me that black and white aren't colors. And I argued up and down that black and white are colors because they were in my crown box. So therefore, they are colors. Some of you still are with me on this. But technically, they're correct, right? Because black is the absence of color and white is all the color. So they're not particularly colors in and of themselves, technicality. But anyway, the point being, new information helped me to change uh, a belief in that, pers- in that time, even though I was pretty set in the belief that I had. So if those are some reasons why we have doubt, and I'll just re- review them real quick. We can't see the whole picture. We just can't. It's not even that we should – I mean it's okay to want to know more, but just understand we will never be able in this life to see the entire picture We live in a broken world as broken people, so our perception of reality is tainted. We can't see things even clearly without God's help. And we have an enemy who's actively working to cause doubt and to deceive us. So it sounds kind of bleak, perhaps. So what do we do with that? So what do we do with our doubt? When doubts come up in our minds, how do we handle them? What do we do? The first thing I just want to really encourage is don't deny them. Don't deny them. Like if you have doubts that are appearing, like it's, Don't deny them. And sometimes we're told to suppress our doubt, especially regarding faith. And maybe some of your parents or even spiritual leaders, if you've tried to voice a doubt, they're like, oh, and they don't, they don't, they don't want to hear it. And they don't want you to, you know, don't, no, don't go there. You know the truth and, you know, stick with that. And you're not really allowed to talk about your doubts. I don't personally believe that's a a real healthy way to be because all it does is it doesn't take your doubt away. All you've been told is that you shouldn't have it and therefore something unnecessary is wrong with you. We all have doubts and so we need a place where we can be able to express them and talk about them and look at them and evaluate them. Because what happens is if we're told not to have doubt and we still have doubt, eventually what I will tend to believe is you're afraid of my doubt. And so you're, you just don't want to, you don't have answers. And that's why you're telling me just don't doubt. And so now I'm doubting the whole reality of what you've told me over my life, as opposed to, no, voice your doubt. Let's talk about that. Where, where's that coming from? What do you think? Oh, right, well, here's some things maybe to think about and have, begin to have a dialogue about the doubts that you have. It's okay to express your doubt. I think this is important for us to understand. As I, challenge me if you, you know, in your groups, talk about this. I don't believe that doubt is the enemy of faith. I don't believe that. I, I believe that unbelief is the enemy of faith. And that's actually the danger that we doubt can lead to unbelief, but unbelief's a choice that we make. I don't really think doubt's a choice. I don't think we necessarily choose to have doubt. I think doubts just come up in our minds. But what we do with those doubts is the choice that we have. And those doubts we can choose to not believe, talking about God and his truth, or we can still choose to believe. So unbelief is actually the enemy of faith. Doubt can actually lead us to greater faith. Doubt can cause us to raise questions that as we pursue God in those questions, I believe can build a greater faith. And I think Job's a great example of this. He's voicing his doubts. He's expressing them. He's asking God, come meet with me. And God finally does. And I think if you ask Job after that whole experience, was your faith strengthened? Did, Did you get to experience more of God? I think he would say yes. Were all your questions answered? No. 
Did you get all the answers you were looking for? No. In fact, God irritatingly told me that I'll never really understand things from his perspective on this earth. And honestly, for some of us, that's just irritating. We just want to know. And we just can't see it from God's perspective on this earth. If you have doubts, I just want you to know from a scriptural perspective, I think you're in good company. Let me just review a couple of the stories that if you know the Bible at all, you may know some of these stories. But Abraham was promised many descendants and a land. He waited till he was 100 years old before he had his first child and died only knowing a bury, only owning a burial plot in the promised land. That was all he owned. God promised. Do you think you might have had some doubts about that? Joseph does the right thing and gets thrown in prison for more than two years. Do you think while he's sitting in prison for doing the right thing that he might have had a few doubts about, hey, what's going on here? I'm trying to do the right thing. You know, and, and here I am, ended up in prison. Moses tries to rescue his people. Now he did it his way. He did it in the way that he thought he should, only to be rejected and forced to flee to the wilderness for 40 years. He's trying to do what he thinks God wants him to do, albeit in his own strength, in his own way, which wasn't right. But he ends up you know, being ostracized for it. David's told he'll be king and has to wait about 15 years while the current king continually tries to kill him. Do you think he might have had some doubts about what God had told him or things that were going on? If you read the Psalms, you hear constantly David's crying out, God, where are you? Why are you not showing up? I, I, I long to see you and hear from you, but it seems like you're silent and distant. That sounds like doubt to me. Sounds like somebody struggling with who God is and where God is. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, all could not have children for periods of time. Do you think they went through doubts of what God had for them? I, I think they did. I mean, we talked about Job. He's the poster child, I think, of doubt. All that happened to him, and yet he verbalizes his doubts, wrestles with his friends about it, which I think was actually a really good thing, and eventually meets with God and discusses them. Other, there's been plenty of others, but one illustration in the New Testament I think is interesting is John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is now in prison, and uh, Herod has put him in prison because John spoke up about some things that weren't right, and so Herod imprisons him. It says, when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You see, John was wrestling with, I was the forerunner for the Messiah. I'm the, I'm the one. And Jesus is, we, I know this to be true. But now here I sit in prison and now I'm starting to doubt. Is Jesus really the guy or is there somebody else who's going to come after him? And he actually sends his disciples to ask Jesus, just tell me, are you the guy or is there going to be somebody else? He's wrestling with if this is a reality. It's very interesting to me what Jesus replied. It says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's almost as if Jesus says, you know, I'm not, he could have just said, yes, John, I am. I'm, I'm the guy. But he says, you know what? John needs more than that. So just go back and tell him, this is what you've seen. This is what you've heard. I'm doing all the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. I'm fulfilling all that God said would be true. I'm doing things that no one else can do, including raising people from the dead. So don't stumble over me. Trust me. Believe me. I am the one. And I find it interesting that that's how Jesus kind of helps John in his, in his journey. And John soon would lose his life, even for his faith. 
So don't deny your doubts. Express them, uh, especially among people who also have faith, even if they're struggling with their faith, to be able to talk about those things and relate to each other, I think is important. Um, another thing I just encourage you to do when you're experiencing doubt is to pursue truth. Now, I know when I say that, maybe you're doubting what is true. So to say pursue truth is like, okay, well, if I knew what that was, I'd go after it. But, you know, even if you could say, all right, the claim of scripture is to be true. So let me at least start there and, and go from there. I find it interesting when you, I encourage you sometime to just read Psalm 19. Um, in the second half of the Psalm, it talks about God's word. And it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. And in Hebrew poetry, David is repeatedly expressing the value of God's word, of God's truth. But listen to the words he uses. It's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant, meaning it's bright. It reveals. So it's not dark. It's bright. It's pure, it's firm, it's righteous. Like, isn't that what we're looking for when we're experiencing doubt? We're looking for things that are firm and trustworthy and true and right. And at least from God's perspective of his word, he's saying, this is what you can trust. This is what you can rely on. So don't ignore, even if your doubts are about God's word or being God's word, I would still encourage you to go to it and allow God to use it in your life, even with your doubt, maybe, maybe even about it. God can still use his word in your life. Think about Jesus' use of scripture to combat the lies of Satan. When Satan comes at him, you know, with the temptations, what does Jesus rely on? He comes back with the truth of God's word, and I think we can, we can do that as well. Research, read, think. You know, this whole idea of pursuing truth, it's, it's okay if you're wrestling with a question. You know, go after some resources that talk about can we trust God's word? What is the evidence for the reliability of scripture um, go after some of those things. Talk to others who may have knowledge. Do some reading yourself. Probe. God gave us a brain to use. So don't feel like you have to shut that brain off when doubt arises. No, let doubt prompt you to further learning. Like let doubt push you to say, okay, I'm going to go after this. And don't be afraid of what you find. Sometimes we're afraid to go down the road of, of, of pursuing doubt. Not pursuing doubt, but like dealing with our doubt because we're afraid at the end of the day we're going to find that this is all made up or some untruth. Well, what, what if you find that it's actually evidence to support it and it's stronger than even you thought it was? So take the opportunity to research and go after it and uh, read and think, talk to others about it. Uh, this is one that's, and these are some I'm just throwing out that I, I know have been helpful for me, but this is one I literally just experienced. And many of you know, we just took a trip out west and we're at the Grand Canyon uh, about a week and a half ago. And it was just amazing. But I would just say when you're experiencing doubt, look at nature. Like, go out into nature and experience it. Get away from everything and go out where you can just see the world. I would say God's creation, but maybe you're struggling that it is God's creation. But just go out and look at the world. And as you do, a couple things will likely happen. I know this happened for me. You will feel small. You will feel like you, you've almost shrunk and, and you're insignificant in light of, like, think about, you know, my experience of the Grand Canyon, this massive hole in the ground, 277 miles from end to end, right? 10 miles across average at every point. 
you know, was it two miles deep or something like that? It's just ridiculous to think about those numbers and then to stand there and look at this thing. It makes you feel very small. You get on a trail to go down and you feel like in 10 minutes you've gone a few feet, you know, like, and there's so much more still to go. It's just ridiculous the size and scope of these kinds of things. And we need to be able to do that to remind ourselves, ask the question, where did all this come from? There's got to be something bigger than me out here. And that something or someone that's bigger than me, look at the order, look at the beauty, look at the way that it's been put together and let all of that speak to you. And if, if you're wondering about that, just know that God's word tells us to do that. God's word tells us that what he has created tells us about him. Again, Psalm 19, I love it. It's divided into two sections. The first section is about nature revealing God. The second half is about God's word revealing God. So it's, it's just a great psalm about God's revelation and, and where you can find it. So let me just read some verses from the first half of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So it's like, there's a voice to the heavens is the idea that, that it's speaking out. It's portraying something. And if you just look at it and you can, you can get a message from it if you're willing to hear it. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And I love that because it means there's not a time that you can't see God's creation. There's not a time. Like daytime, nighttime, it doesn't matter. You look up at the stars. You look up at the sun. You look up at whatever you're seeing and you can see things that speak to you about God and his power. It says, verse 3, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And what I love about that is it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't even matter if you can speak, this, this creation speaks to you in a way that you can understand. It's just so amazing to me to think about how God has revealed himself in ways that aren't limited by your human ability to read or, you know, even understand words. It's just you look at what's around you. you if you can't see, maybe you listen to what's around you and you're, you're taking in God's revelation of what he wants to reveal to you. He goes on, the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Again, nothing is deprived. No matter where you live, you can see the sun come up and you can see the sun go down. doesn't matter what part of the world. Well, if you're in the Arctic for a certain period of time, I guess that's not true. But generally speaking, you have this idea of you know sunrise, sunset, and the sun moving across the sky. Even that is a revelation of the order and control that God has over this earth. And many of you know the sun is the most worshipped item of nature because it's perceived as the most powerful, right? That has the most energy and it's life-giving. And that's true, it is. But so people often will worship the sun instead of worship the one who made the sun and gave it to us as a gift for life. So this idea of the sun is what David uses in his, in his poetry here to proclaim uh, just the greatness of God. So, you know, what does God do with Job? He points him to nature. Things bigger than himself. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I set limits for the ocean? Where were you when I put the planets and the stars in place? Where were you when I told the animals how to have babies and how to hunt and how to live? And wherever they are, I know where they are. How about you? Do you know any of this? And he's, what is he doing? He's pointing them to this overwhelming declaration of nature that there's something so much bigger than us. And in the midst of our doubts about God, sometimes we just need to be reminded. And I think nature is a great way to remind ourselves of just God's presence and, and who he is. 
Romans chapter 1 uh, also talks about God's revealing himself in nature, but this has a, a warning attached to it. And um, Romans 1 starts the wrath, verse 18 I'm starting, and the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's a real encouraging verse, right? So God is going to judge, deal with those who choose to suppress the truth. So there's truth. You can either accept it or suppress it. These people are choosing to suppress it. What does that look like? He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. No one can say, well, God, you didn't reveal yourself to me. What what Paul is saying is, no, God's revealed himself clearly to everyone. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, so since the very beginning of time, God's invisible qualities... And he gives examples, his eternal power and divine nature, so that he's all-powerful and that he's above us, he's divine, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul's argument here is if you're wondering about the existence of God, just know you'll never be able to say at the end of your life, God, you never revealed yourself to me. He'll say, yes, I did. Every day of your life, you just chose to either suppress it or accept it. That was your choice. But I did reveal myself to you, that I'm present and that I'm powerful and that I'm God. What you did with that is up, was up to you. But we won't be able to argue, make the argument that will stand that God did not reveal himself to us. So, so far we've talked about pursue, you know, pursue truth, look at nature. Um, another one, listen to stories of God at work. And I'll, I'll close with this. Um, you know, we fill our minds, we choose with what we fill our minds with. There's things that come at us, but we generally choose what we digest, what we take in. And so I just want to encourage you, fill your mind with stories of faith, not statements of disbelief. Fill your mind with stories of faith and not statements of disbelief. Um, This I liken to, there are times where we need to lean on the faith of the people around us. And that's okay. Now, as kids, if you grew up in a Christian home and you were raised you know, to believe the truths of the Bible, at some point, you have to own that faith yourself. You can't live off your parents' faith. But as adults, we all need times when our faith might be weak, when we're going through a, tr- tr- a very difficult time or challenging time, and we need to lean on the faith of people around us in that time. I liken this in nature. If you watch geese fly in formation, right, the whole V formation thing, the one in the front is the one who's breaking, you know, going through the air, and the ones on, in the V are benefiting from the one in the front. And they're all the ones that are honking, encouraging the guy in the front. And then what happens is the one in the front slides back into the V, and another one will go to the front. And the same thing happens. They're pulling the most weight. Everybody else is benefiting in the V formation, and they're honking, encouraging the one that's in the front. And at times, we may feel like we're in the front, like we're plowing ahead, our faith is strong, we're moving forward, we're excited, and other people are encouraging us. But sometimes we need to fade into the back a little bit, and we need to let somebody else's faith maybe carry us along a little bit, and just you know, be able to go in their wake and experience the benefits of their faith. Uh, and I think that's legit. I think it happens. Uh, but what we fill our minds with matters in these situations. Um, examples in JJ references the Maverick podcast that Pioneers Mission Organization does. Such a great story of a guy named Bashara in uh, in Africa and his amazing story 
of just miracles happening in his life that God has used him now to reach so many different people. And uh, just a regular guy that God got a hold of and totally changed his life. And um, stories like that inspire us. And they, they help us see, wow, I don't see God working like this. And maybe you listen to a story like that. You're like, I wish I saw God. Celebrate that God is working like that. And he's working like that. And it's the same God who is at work in your life. Whether you see that kind of dynamic work or not, he's still at work in your life. It's important to tell the stories of how we've seen God intervene. And I loved how JJ started his message where he asked you guys just to make a list of where you've seen God show up. Because you need to be able to go back to that list at times and be like, right now, it certainly doesn't look like God's showing up in my life. But hold on. I can't just make my judgment based on what I see right now. If I'm honest, intellectually honest, I have to take as much of the picture into account as I can. So I have to go back. Have I seen God at work in my life? Well, I did here, and I did here, and I did here. So is it possible that God is at work in my life now, but I'm just not seeing it like I did here and here and here? Again, you make the choice of what you choose to believe and act on, but at least you have something to say. There is evidence to say that God has worked in my life. So now it's up to me to choose, did I think he ought just stopped? <laughs> or is it that I maybe just can't see it right now in whatever it is that I'm going through? Well, I choose uh, to believe. So let me go back to my mom's story because I want to share with you the rest of the story uh, of what took place in her life. So the way that I shared it with you is certainly from one perspective and everything that I said was true. And, you know, at the end of her life, it's, it was kind of a down, like, ugh, you know, you wish it would have gone differently. But let me add a few more details to the story. When mom moved back to this area, and I kind of took the lead in, in taking her to the doctors and going, and actually my wife and I both did. She's a nurse, and so we were able to, to do that together. And um, so we started going around and kind of figuring out what's going on. And when we eventually found out that it was ALS, then you're, you know, as you maybe have experienced, like once you learn about something, then you go down this road that you never really knew existed of all this information about this disease and things like that. Or it's like if you get a car and all of a sudden you see that car everywhere and all of a sudden you're aware of it, you know, it's the same kind of idea. And so we began to kind of research, all right, well, what resources are available? And first thing we discovered that in the city of Philadelphia, there's not just one, but two hospitals, world-renowned, who have special units for ALS treatment. And so we didn't just have to try to find one. We actually had to pick between two. And so we saw that right away as a blessing that, you know, God provided that resource for us. And the more we learned and the more we got into it, we also learned that uh, some of you may have heard of the ALS Association. You know, there's a lot of charities for different diseases, and ALS has one. It's called the ALS Association. It's a nationwide organization. But the largest chapter of the ALS Association is, guess where? Philadelphia. And that's because they're the main charity of the Philadelphia Phillies, who a friend of mine worked for at the time and had invited my mom and I any time to go to their charity event that they have once a year for us. We never made it to go to one, but they're a major charity sponsored by that team. And so they're well-resourced. In fact, they're the largest, like I said, chapter in the country. And uh, so they have all these resources that all of a sudden became available to us. When mom moved in with us, they sent out a guy to put a ramp up our front porch steps because she was in a wheelchair by that time so she could get in and out of our house. We didn't pay for it. I didn't do it. It just, they did it. And then when mom moved into a facility, the 
I guess the same guy came, took it all down, took it away. It was gone. Like I never had to do anything. I didn't pay a dime for it. It was just that's part of the service that they provided. And we began to realize that there was these resources for us in the midst of this challenging time. And when it was time to place mom somewhere, because we knew she would need a lot of care physically, we also learned that the association had a six-bed unit at Chandler Hall in Newtown. Some of you might be familiar with that facility. But they, have a six, they had a six-bed unit there just for ALS patients. It was the only one of its kind in the country. And it was literally right in our backyard. And people from all over the country are on a waiting list to get into it. So we're like, all right, well, we'll put our name in there and we'll see what happens. We put our name in. They called us not long after. We want to come out and interview you. They came out to the house. They interviewed us. They said, we'd like you to come and stay with us. We were like, don't we have to be on a list or something? I never really got the answer as to why we got the invite. I don't know. But we were invited, and Mom was, had now a place to stay for the rest of her life where she was cared for in a unit designed for people with her disease and a place where I could go visit her you know, regularly and go and, and spend time with her. So that was a huge blessing. And that's where she, that's where she t- uh, spent her time until the Lord took her home. You know, it, was, it wasn't long after that, and I forget why I was back. Maybe I was visiting somebody, you know, from the church or something, and I was back at Chandler Hall, and I kind of went through that area, and I found out that that unit no longer exists. It was only there for a few years, and I guess financially or whatever, maybe it wasn't feasible, they couldn't keep it going. But right when my mom needed it, it was there for us to be able to, to take advantage of that resource. And so I want you to hear the rest of the story, because you can hear my mom's story, and it can raise doubt. Or you can hear my mom's story and it can affirm that God is actively involved in our lives. Which way do you want to hear the story? Which way do you want to see it? Both are true. Both ways I told it are accurate. But sometimes it comes down to how we choose to perceive what's going on in our lives and what God is doing. And my my challenge is, in the midst of your doubt, would you be open to say, I don't like what's going on? I, I don't like it at all. I didn't like that my mom had that disease. I would have changed that if I could. I, we prayed for that, but God said no in that regard. But we can sometimes be so focused on what we want here that we don't let ourselves see what God does do even when he doesn't give us exactly what it is that we want. And so even in the midst of things that might cause doubt in our lives, if we're open to look and have open eyes, we may find that God is actually giving us evidence for belief in the midst of the very thing that might be causing us doubt, if we're willing to look for it. And I guess that's what I want to challenge you guys with. You know, when, in it, when doubt comes, you, the, the, choice, the choice isn't yours to have doubt. I, I think sometimes doubts come upon us and they're just part of, again, our human experience. But what you do choose is what you do with that doubt. And you can choose to let that doubt pull you away from God or you can choose to let that doubt push you to lean into God with your questions, with your unanswered questions, but just make a choice based on what he has done in the past. And I love this. Go back to the cross if you need to. If you can't think of anything in your life that God has done, go back to the cross and the resurrection. There is no greater evidence of God's power and God's love than the cross and the resurrection. So go there and plant your faith there. And let that influence how you choose to react in those moments of doubt that you may be experiencing. Because it is a choice that we make. It is your choice. But I would say if you choose to pull away, just be honest about the consequences of your choice. Be honest. Because in times when perhaps I've been tempted to go that direction, 
by the grace of God, I've also thought, okay, well, if I go down that road, where does that leave me? If I go here and I lean into God, even a God I don't understand and a God who's not doing what I want him to do right now, I still have God. <laughs> but if I choose to say I'm done with you, God, and I turn away and go my own, then what do I have? I've got me. <laughs> I'm not real excited about that. <laughs> I'd like something a little greater than that. And so even in the midst of those times of doubt, I want to encourage you to, to lean into a God you don't understand. Sometimes, honestly, you won't like. You won't like what he's doing. I, you know, I didn't tell this part of the story. I don't like that he took my wife a year and a half ago to cancer. I don't like that. I wish it was a different story. But I choose to lean into him and trust that he has a purpose in that and that he can still be good in our lives, even though it's not the way I would want it to be. Because God has revealed himself to be good too many times in my life for me just to cut and bail. And where would I be if I did? I don't like considering that option either. It's not a pretty picture of thinking where we may be. So last thing, just one more reference to a Bible story. This is in Mark chapter 9 as I wrap up. This has always been something I just appreciate this guy. There's a father who brings his son to Jesus. Actually, he brought him to the disciples, and the disciples couldn't heal him. His son's been tormented by a demon to the point of the father's had to do everything he possibly can just to keep his son alive. And I try to put myself in people's shoes in Scripture to try to feel what they're feeling. And as a dad, I can't imagine watching my son every minute worried that something influencing him is going to try to kill my son. And how do I interact in those situations and exhaustion and just sheer hopelessness that this dad must be feeling? And so he brings his son to the disciples, and the disciples can't do anything. Jesus isn't there. He's off with his other three up on the mount, that whole transfiguration thing. So Jesus comes back, and the dad now comes to, to Jesus and says, you know, I hear I brought my son, and your disciples couldn't do anything, and, you know, this is what's been happening, and, and I, you know, if, and I love what he says. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I hear in that dad's voice this desperation, like, I want to hope, but I've been disappointed every other time in my life. So I'm coming to you because you're my last shot. But if you can do anything, could you just take pity on us and just help us? Could you do something? And Jesus responds, if you can, said Jesus. He picks up on the man's statement. If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Will you just trust me in this situation? Even though everything has told you this is hopeless and maybe nothing can be done. And this is what the guy responds. This is what resonates with me. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And if you think about that statement, you're like, that's an oxymoron. I do believe I don't believe. I do believe I don't believe. And yet, how true is that of me and probably of you? God, I do believe. I want to believe. I, I do believe. But I struggle with belief. I have doubts. I struggle. And I love what he says, help me with my unbelief. The very God that you may be doubting is the God who is able to help you in the midst of your doubt. So even with your doubt, I just encourage you to go to him and say, God, you know I have doubts. You know I'm questioning. You know I'm not sure. I, I'm wondering about you. But would you help me with that doubt? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you, would you help me work through this? Because I want that. I want to be in that relationship with you. I want to experience that. But I'm just struggling right now. 
And I believe he's a God who cares, and he'll meet you in that. I don't know exactly what he'll do. I'm not trying to say he'll answer everything the way you want it to be. But I do believe he'll he'll meet you in the midst of that like he did Job. And again, that didn't go the way Job expected it to. But I think Job ended up with a much deeper relationship with God as a result of that encounter than he had before um, the encounter, even though his life was going along really nicely uh, before that all happened. So... So that's my challenge. Uh, Hopefully that is in some way helpful to you. So I'm just going to close this in prayer, and then you guys can head into your groups and have some time of discussion to, uh, to do that.